Well, first of all, let me say what a, a very rich day it's been and how much I've learned. It's just been a, a, a very, very fruitful experience. And, of course, I have both the short and the long straw of, of, of having the last presentation. And I thought I would use this opportunity, really, just to uh, reflect on the writing of the Great War um, as an historian from a distance, and particularly a hundred years' distance. And as you'll know, if you've made a trip to any bookshop, either physically or online in recent months or years, the centenary of the First World War has generated a ver veritable tsunami of publications, of which, of course, my book and uh, <laughs> the other's authors uh, are examples. But in fact, for all this, the literature of Australia's Great War, if I can call it that, has tended to be relatively narrow. Today our focus has been on literature and poetry and fiction and other aspects, but I would say generally the, the historiography of the war is still predominantly of two genres. Firstly, operational military history, by which I mean um, the history of battles, military units, commanders and individual winners, say, of the Victoria Cross. And secondly, stories that have a human dimension to them, such as Peter's of the, um, the Anzac Girls and, and Janet's of Kitty. Um, and these, are, of course, are splendid histories, but it's, it is my concern that we still have a rather narrow understanding of the war. And what I'd like to just comment on, I think, particularly, is how Australians have written about battles and about those other battles on the home front, which still remain relatively neglected in our understanding of the First World War. Now, as Peter's just indicated, within Australian writing on battles, there is a hierarchy, at the top of which, of course, is Gallipoli. Some years ago, I, I tried to get everyone attending an academic conference to raise their hands and pledge that they would not write another book about Gallipoli. <laughs> but it made no difference. Um, and now every detail, I would say, of the Gallipoli campaign has pretty well been covered and many times, at least in Australia so far as the Anzac sector is concerned. We know much less still about uh, the operations south at Cape Hellas or even at Suvla Bay, which tend to get relegated to the wings, except when they involved Australians, for example, at the Battle of Second Crithia, which made a huge impact on Bean. Or we focus on aspects of the Gallipoli campaign, which, as we've heard earlier, affirm a narrative of British incompetence. We really have, as I said, all the answers, I think, now to the Gallipoli campaign. Did Australians land at the wrong place? Probably, though there was considerable ambiguity about what was the correct place. Was the campaign badly managed and planned? Emphatically, yes. Was a critical opportunity for consolidating the Australian hold above Anzac Cove lost on the morning of um, the 25th of April? Well, possibly. And did the campaign ever have a chance of strategic success? Well, no, and in, even if it did, it would not have won the war. Now, this focus on Gallipoli, as we've already heard, I think, um, was very early. It was, in fact, a product of the war experience itself. Um, Philip has sp spoken about the importance of C.J. Dennis's work. We had the Anzac book that Bean himself edited... Uh, late 1915 and early 1916. And the phrase that Gallipoli was the birth of the nation, in fact, can be dated back to the war years. And as we've heard, Bean wrote a very extensive official history, 
in which two of the ten operational volumes, including those written by others, were focused on Gallipoli. The first volume on Gallipoli was 607 pages long, and it took the story only as far as the 4th of May 1915. In contrast, and I'll return to this later, Bean's account of the battles of 1917, which was by far the worst year in terms of Australian deaths, and a far more significant one in the defeat of Germany, was confined to a single volume, admittedly of more than a 1,000 pages. And it seems to me that the way in which Australians today, not just in their emphasis on Gallipoli, but in many ways, would not necessarily or does not necessarily align with the memories of the soldiers that fought the war. Now, let me say we don't actually know a lot, I think, about the memories of those soldiers. Because despite what we've heard today, only a small proportion of men wrote at the time in a way that I would call um, existential, in the sense they gave us a, an understanding of what they perceived the war to be about and what they thought it was achieving. We do have other evidence, of course, and perhaps at this point I'm able to talk to other sources, which I think are a kind of writing. So if you take, for example, the Australian National Memorial at Villas Bretonneux, which was erected in 1938, you'll see that these are the battles, the battle honours that are listed on that memorial. I won't read them all out, but I think it's self-evident that many of those names have very little resonance today. How many of the reading public would know, for example, of um, Schween, perhaps Hasebrook? Almost certainly not Epihi. And one of the questions that I think we need to ask is why is it that the writing about the Great War does not give prominence to some of these battles, which were far more important strategically and far more costly in terms of human life than Gallipoli? And I pondered this question, particularly when I was writing about 1917, which, as I've said, accounted for about one-third of Australian deaths and two-and-a-half times the number of deaths at Gallipoli. I doubt that many Australians who go to the Western Front today... Oh, I must pause. This shows you the uh, casualties. As you'll see, the casualties in 1918 and 1917 were huge. And we still... We very rarely speak about, say, the breaking of the Hindenburg Line in 1918. The blue line, for your interest, is enlistments, and when we try to understand the conscription debates, you can see why there was such tension in Australian society, because as the casualties continued to occur in large numbers, enlistment just was on an inexorable decline. Now, I think few Australians who visit Tyne Cot, one of these... Um, extraordinary cemeteries that we've heard described earlier, would know that the towering cross of sacrifice, and this is the largest British cemetery on the Western Front, sits on a pillbox captured by the Australian 3rd Division on the 4th of October 1917. And the dedication on that cross tells the visitor this. Again, I think a form of writing. But Tynecott and the 4th of October have never been central to our national calendar of commemoration. Indeed, in 2011, the ABC noted not the 4th of October, but the 12th of October, just a, a, the Battle of Passchendaele very shortly after this, as the anniversary of the 2005 Bali bombings. There was no recognition that the 12th of October was Passchendaele. 
well, why is this? I think the answer lies to some degree, actually, in writing. We've already heard, and I, I agree entirely with Adrian, about the problems of actually conveying combat in, in literary form. I think there are real issues with what happens to that kind of experience when you translate it uh, into a literary form. But beyond that, there is, I think, an issue about the form that narrative writing often takes. Now, ghastly though the battles of 1917 were, battles such as Bullicourt, Menon Road, Polygon Wood, they lacked the form and the drama and the sense of place that shape a strong heroic drama, dramatic narrative. They had no dramatic scaling of the cliffs, such as we see on the left, the famous Sphinx of Gallipoli. On the right, we have the fields of Belgium. There's no climactic moment, like the charge at the neck, which forms the end of Peter Weir's famous film, Gallipoli. And the Western Front also gave centre stage not to courageous individuals, though there were plenty of these, but to very depersonalised artillery, poison gas, air power and all the other lethal technology of mass industrial warfare. And so I pondered in my book, what if Peter Weir were to try and make a sequel to Gallipoli called Brunsinda? What would its dramatic climax be? To add to this, no battle in 1917 can be depicted as a baptism of fire, as was Gallipoli, to some degree Frommel, which we've just heard about, Pozier, the first major action on the Western Front, and Long Tan in the Vietnam War. All of these invoke this idea of the first, which I think is very important in commemorative and literary practice. The battles of 1917 were all just in the middle of a long war of attrition. And what we forget is that in their own terms, they were relatively successful. And you might ask whether this is a liability at a time when we seem obsessed with victimhood, trauma and mass death. And as we've heard, the, the dominant trope now in our understanding of the Great War is that of disillusionment, uh, a view that, of course, emerged, as we've heard, in the interwar years, but then came to an absolute peak in the 1960s when that discourse about futility, about the men being lions who were sacrificed by the, the incompetent British donkeys um, really gained traction. And if you teach students today the First World War, you can be pretty certain that one of their first points of cultural reference is Blackadder. <laughs> you can connect with Blackadder. So, there is, however, uh, I think an interesting issue. We don't have, for example, a history of Polygon Wood. I'll get back to Frommel in a moment. But 1917, in a strange way, while being neglected, I think, to a considerable degree in the literature, is dominant in the visual imagery. Some of the most haunting and well-known photographs of World War I are drawn from late 1917. Australian soldiers marching past the ruins of the Ypres Cloth Hall, dead and wounded soldiers, as you'll see here in the Frank Hurley photo, huddled in the railway cutting at Brunsinder, and, and the devastated landscape of um, Belgium, the mud water and gaunt trees uh, near Manham Wood. Now, I would suggest that many Australians would struggle to actually know where these photographs were taken. But they have become, again, I think, a kind of form of inscription or writing 
that come to stand for really all the horrors of the Western Front. So the point I'm making, obviously, is that over the years, the writing about the Great War in some ways has become distanced from the way that the Australians who experienced it with themselves have remembered it. Let's not forget that only two, and the second division came rather late to Gallipoli, only two of the five divisions actually fought at Gallipoli. Now, let me return then to the inscription of, of memory that we find in the war memorials that were built on the Western Front. Now, in early 1919, it was decided by the Australian authorities that each of the five infantry divisions of the Australian Imperial Force should be allowed to erect a monument to commemorate their exploits. This splendidly bureaucratic um, obelisk was designed by a functionary in um, Australia House. Although I am possibly General Hobbs, um, commander of the 5th Division, had something to do with it also. But this was, this was what the divisional memorials generally looked like, the second being an exception. What I found interesting is that the decision as to where this um, standard obelisk was to be placed was delegated to the divisions themselves, or at least to the divisional leadership. And they were allowed to choose the site. And I think this is one way in the absence of written sources, of trying to understand how the men of those divisions understood their achievements. And interestingly, the five sites that they chose were generally sites of victory. Now, it's got rather elongated. Here is the, the map of where they put them. The first division chose to put its monument at Pozieres, which was a pretty obvious choice because that's where they had... Uh, um, had such a terrible experience in 1916. They'd already started to put monuments there during the war. And even though the Battle of the Somme was probably a strategic failure, there's much debate about that, Pozieres at least was a sort of tactical victory uh, within it. The second division chose Mons and Quentin, where the Australians captured the small hill overlooking the town of Peron in a dramatic battle in September, October 1918. The third division chose Silasek, the place where the Australians held the German attacks during the spring offensive of March 1918. That would be, I think, and we, we overuse the word forgotten, but I would wager a bet that Silasek's been forgotten. The fourth division chose Bellinglis, where the Australian Corps broke through the Hindenburg Line in late 1918, and the fifth chose Polygon Wood, which was within the general strategic nightmare of the Third Ebra or Passchendaele, um, a tactical victory. So it seems that these men wanted to be remembered as heroes, not as sacrificial lambs. And it is often commented that today we talk a lot more about men dying for their country rather than killing for their country. Though I can assure you that Pompey Elliott, of whom we've heard earlier, boasted about the capacity of his men to kill. Today, we tend to see the soldiers of World War I, and this is not just a phenomenon that is confined to Australia, and I'll quote a French author, we see them as, quote, mere non-consenting victims, and mutineers and rebels are the only true heroes. 
And I think if you look at this map, it is clear that we tend to privilege battle sites now that are different from these and battles that were disasters. So if you look at the Australian in commemorative, um, what's it being called, the interpretive trail that's being developed in, on the Western Front today, it will have towns, some of these, but not all of these towns. So, for example, Bullicourt has become come to the fore as a classic of bad planning and futile loss of life in April, May 1917. And as we've heard, that's the 5th Division Memorial, obviously, as we've heard, Frommel has also come to the fore. Let me say, I went to a ceremony about Frommel in probably 1997 at the Shrine of Remembrance, and I would have been one of 20 in a crowd. This has been rediscovered through the efforts of, of uh, a small group of Australians, including a Melbourne school teacher, I think of Greek extraction, where they discovered the grave of the missing. And this is the, um, I think, the first grave uh, cemetery created by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission since, 19, since the end of the Second World War. So Frommel is right up there now in lights, if I can put it rather cynically, as the greatest disaster suffered in 24 hours. Um, Frommel did, of course, have some exposure in the interval years, particularly through Elliot, um, but it was not the place the 5th Division chose to put their monument. Nor did the 4th Division agonize, um, choose Bully Court, which was again a disaster, although there's evidence that they agonised over it. They had two long, worrying meetings about what to do, where to put their memorial. But in the end, as I've said, they chose the Hindenburg Line, where they had made an identifiable contribution to Allied victory. The point I'm making, I think, is a more general one, that when writing about the war today, we really need to continue that, end, that enduring battle of historians, which is to understand the mentality of those we are studying in the past. This applies not just to commemoration, but issues such as motivation. Why did these men fight in World War I? Now, there is a rich collection, as we've heard, of letters, diaries and memoirs that the men of the AIF created and left behind and which are stored not just here but, of course, in the Australian War Memorial. But these sources have their limitations. Normally, when, if we're talking about motivation, normally men began writing home only after they had joined the AIF. They're not recording why they're doing it. Moreover, as with combat, when these men committed their thoughts and emotions to paper, often they became locked in stylistic conventions. It's clear also that some men, and I think we've heard about some women from um, Janet earlier, exercise some degree of self-censorship about not only what they're experiencing but about their own emotional responses to it. Not Pompey Elliot, it seems. Um, and many men tried to exclude from their correspondence home um, e events and experiences that would cause their family's anxiety. Probably four out of every five men of the AAF were unmarried, so it was their mums. And I found the, the poetry from mothers very powerful. It was their mothers who were worrying about them, and many men seemed not to want to write in a way that made mum anxious. And so... Dysfunctional and difficult behaviour, fear, doubt, anger and regret was often repressed, though not always the case. Another point about soldiers' memoirs 
is that they were often, but not exclusively, written by the more educated classes. And it's often the more educated classes that get quoted. Terrible danger for their historians to be drawn to the quotable quote. Um, um, we also know that the way men write about their experiences, like personal memory, tends to be shaped by later life experiences and cultural influences. To quote Richard White, the experience of war itself has important effects on the men's explanations as to why they were there. And different explanations are required for different purposes at different points in a soldier's career. And the same can be said for oral history, of which this library again has a wonderful collection. Because often stories about the past get rehearsed time and again in group settings and come eventually to reflect not just individual memory but wider collective and cultural memories. Alastair Thompson's very influential book, Anzac Memory, shows this so well that when he was interviewing the veterans of Gallipoli in the 1980s, he found that their memories had changed over time in relation to the public national narratives of the landing that they were hearing. So their own memories were becoming incorporated into wider narratives of the war. So in many ways, I think we, we, don't, we have difficulties understanding the mindset, the emotions and the attitudes of people of the past particularly um, because their values, in some ways, are very, were very different to ours. Again, if I could quote from French historians Stéphane Audouane Rousseau and Annette Becker, who've written that the sense of obligation, of unquestioned sacrifice, which held most people in World War I in its tenacious, cruel clutches for so long and so profoundly and without which the war could never have lasted as long as it did, is no longer acceptable. The foundation on which the immense collective consensus of 1914 to 18 was based has vanished into thin air. Now, I think that problem of understanding is as great when we look at the home front as when we look at battles. Question, one of the questions that I can keep asking is why did the men of the AIF stay there in the Somme winter of 1916-17? And one of the striking features of the writing which the centenary has spawned is how little of it, I think, comparatively, deals with the Australians who stayed at home. Yet these were the majority. Depending on what statistic you take, Somewhere between 60 and 70% of Australian men of what might be deemed military age did not volunteer. The, the num men who volunteered were the minority of the Australian males. And what has happened to the voice of those who stayed at home in the history of the Great War? And as you'll know if you've looked at my book, one of my goals was to try and retrieve those voices and in particular to see how those voices interwove with the experience of the men on the battlefront. Now, it's obvious that Australians at home did not experience any of the physical damage of war, such as bombing, uh, occupation and starvation, but their experience was in some ways as fundamental as the experience of the AIF. 
because for all the divisions at home, the Australian population in general continued to support the war. Now, there were divisions, obviously, over conscription for overseas service, and uh, this has figured very strongly in the historiography of the war, particularly in the 1970s debate about conscription, which is, might I say, an example of how history is often shaped by the con contemporary preoccupations of the historian. Because the generation of historians that discovered conscription as an issue to write about were the same people who were being subjected to the selective or birthday ballot during the Vietnam War. There were also deep divisions within Australia during the war on the issue of equality of sacrifice, equality of sacrifice. Now, for many in the trade union movement, many of them stayed at home, the real war was between labour and capital, as this cartoon depicts. And the plutocrat, or capitalism, was always depicted as what was fondly called fat, he was making obscene profits while the men were dying overseas. Again, cartoons to me seem to be at least a visual form of writing and the, the, the left-wing press is very rich also in, in descriptions of these debates. Now, this discontent on the left, which fueled the Labour split of 1916, exploded in a huge general strike in 1917, which began in the New South Wales tramways over a relatively minor issue and then spread right down the eastern coast from New South Wales to incorporate Victoria, right north to incorporate Queensland. And within five weeks, 69,000 workers had struck and at the height of the strike, more than a quarter of all New South Wales unionists were on strike. Now, I would challenge uh, us to find many people today who know about the general strike of 1917 even though historians, labour historians, have described it as arguably the most cataclysmic event in the class struggle in early 20th century Australia. And while we are uh, routinely exhorted to remember the mateship of the diggers, we are seldom encouraged to reflect on the solidarity displayed by working class Australians who banded together in this collective action to resist industrial oppression. And, of course, this is in part because the dominant narrative to emerge from World War I was, as we know, the Anzac legend, which has worked to sideline different stories of nation-building and which has oriented the national memory of World War I towards military prowess and military exploits rather than visions of social justice and democratic equality. Again, I think the erasure of the general strike from what I might call national memory, is an a confirmation of how we remember the past through the lenses of the present. Today, when neoliberal market economics seems to be triumphant, though I can tell you as a historian it won't last forever, and only one in five, one in five, if that, of full-time employees in Australia are members of a trade union, class warfare and millenarian visions of the collapse of capitalism seem to be tales from a past that is indeed a foreign country. As I said earlier, for all these divisions in Australia, it is important to remember that the majority of the population continued to support the war. And even though the conscription referenda were lost, the demand for capitulation or even for a negotiated peace, as the union movement argued, 
never became dominant. And in contrast to Russia, where, of course, there was even higher levels of civil dissent and dispute, Australia did not dissolve into revolution or civil war, although there was a lot of violence in public life in the war years. Why Australian political structures survived is a fascinating question, um, to which I still don't really have the answer. I think it has something to do with the robustness of the institutions and the style of political democracy, which was already well-developed in Australia. But it also perhaps owes something to the power of the values that were widely shared, even across the divisions, and provided a sense of social cohesion, despite the pressures of the war. And those values were white Australia and imperial loyalty. We don't talk much about those today. But it has to be said time and again that Australians fought not for the Australian nation, but for the British Empire, of which they were part. So again, we have the problem of understanding how do we write about a society that would tolerate more than 60,000 deaths from a population of 5 million for values such as imperial loyalty and racism. I think many people answer that question today by simply ignoring those dimensions to Australia in the past because they're politically uncomfortable. And another aspect of the war which generally gets overlooked because it's politically awkward are the patriotic funds movements. This was a remarkable mobilisation of the civilian population and particularly the women of Australia. In 1917, it's estimated that about 55,000 women were in paid employment in Australia. 82,000 women joined the Red Cross and that was only one of a plethora of organisations. And I just... This is the women of Australia in the Government House in Melbourne with their parcels, and I find the one on the right truly extraordinary. There you are on the Western Front in the famous mud, and what are you getting? You get a cup of tea from the women of Australia. That speaks more than many words, I think. Nearly 400,000 Red Cross parcels were sent from Australia to Germany, Holland, Austria and Switzerland. But this mobilisation has been largely overlooked, partly, I think, because the women was voluntary, uh, the women's work was voluntary, and the view of women that this kind of work encapsulated uh, is, is not one which late 20th century feminism uh, finds acceptable. That is, women, as we've heard, were encouraged to stay at home in a traditional feminine nurturing role, or to be nurses in a traditional nurturing role, waiting and weeping and keeping the home fires burning. But more problematically, these same women not only affirm traditional notions of femininity, but they supported the war generally. They were patriotic and militaristic. And indeed, the Red Cross, it has been argued, uh, in international scholarship, became, in a quite ironic sense, militarised. That is, its humanitarian impulses and its internationalist impulses were appropriated for the cause of nationalism and with, uh, ironically, the Red Cross actually aided the work of killing by relieving the national governments of many of their obligations to their own citizens. 
So all of that makes it a bit difficult. And I wrote an article in, oh, 15 years ago saying whatever happened to patriotic women and no one's ever answered the question. So to conclude, it seems to me that writing about Australia's history of the Great War has been shaped and continues to be shaped not simply by the events of the past but by the events and values of the present. And this is not just because historians always face the problem of how to fill and find the missing pieces of jigsaws but because we know that unless we're going to write chronicles, we have to be selective. It's an inherent part of any historical writing and indeed of any individual writing, as I think Janet showed very powerfully. And so in making choices about what to include or exclude, all writers are inevitably the prisoner of their own values and prejudices. But if our choices are driven too much by what sells or what will make good television programs, then we are at risk of engaging not in history but in memory, which is a related but very different phenomenon.